Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast who has spent years listening to countless cases. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into true crime after being recommended a case on a YouTube channel. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this. This episode is our special Black History Month episode, so we wanted to dedicate an episode to Black History Month. And today we have with us Pamela. Not only is she one of my bestest friends and the sole reason I made it through university, but she is the living embodiment of Black girl magic. She is an activist who has dedicated her career to working with marginalized women. So welcome, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, ladies. I love that intro. I feel so important. Like <laughs> You are important. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so, so so excited to be here today it literally took everything in me not to google reddit the case i'm so excited that i'm not going to be the only one that doesn't know what's about to come our way i have my good fbi mug with me love it (laughs) okay so pam i know you've listened but this is the part of the show where we talk a bit about our updates we say a little bit about our week or tell each other and the listeners something new in our lives so i have some kind of exciting news that Pamela I haven't told you yet. Marie knows because I just couldn't couldn't hold it in but we are adopting a puppy. Oh my god I'm so Rosie's gonna have a little brother or sister? Yes so we do have a cat right now her name is Rosie and uh, we are getting a little boy puppy so a little male puppy. We're really excited so we get him on Friday Uh, he's gonna be a handful. I think we're going with the name Ollie so maybe next recording for those who watch on YouTube I'll show you guys a little puppy. Yes, and then we'll have to post him on our Instagram as well, just like we oh, did yes. with Zoe. Oh, yes. Ollie and Zoe. That is the cutest <laughs> little combo. Oh, not me about to bother you during the middle of the day just for pictures of the puppy. Like. <laughs> no bother at all. I'm sure I'll be taking thousands of pictures, but we're, yeah, we're super excited. So we just recorded two days ago, but I mean, since Renee's getting a puppy, obviously I'm going to be an auntie. So that's my update. I'm super excited to be an auntie and spoil little Ollie. My update will be also exciting news but I also it's an exciting news that I say monthly so this time I really mean it but I'm gonna be starting my tarot business in early February I was just talking about tarot reading in another episode be on the lookout if you want a reading by Peace Waggy soon you will have all the links on Instagram and we'll share that on our social media so anyone who's listening who wants to uh, get a nice tarot reading by Pamela can I've had them before they're pretty amazing really excited for you the sources for this week is one episode of the podcast Black Queer and Trans Excellence Uh, the host of the podcast is Hollywood Jade and he interviews Mocha Dawkins an article from The Star by Betsy Powell, a Global News article, as well as an interview with Mocha Dawkins, and a Toronto Sun article by Sam Pazano. There's also a documentary that I watched called Surviving the Flock that's available on Out TV. It's August 3rd, 2015. Mocha Dawkins is a 25-year-old Black trans woman living in Toronto, Ontario. 
It's the end of Carabana Weekend. Okay, Carabana Weekend used to be the hottest thing. So I'm being like reminded of back in my youth. I was hoping that you would comment on this. So I've never been to Carabana Weekend, but I know that you have. So can you give us like a bit of a description as to what that's like? Carabana Weekend is like the time of all times. It's normally in August, like the long weekend of August. It's in Toronto. And when I tell you it's bumping, I mean, it's bumping. There's like a parade of different like uh, floats and the floats represent like different cultures, different like music styles, different food. People are just dancing. I, it's just crazy. Like the energy is so insane. That sounds amazing. Pre-COVID life. It's just like, right? wow. <laughs> Such a strange concept now, but uh, yes, sounds wonderful. So this is where we're at in 2015 and Mocha is getting ready for a night out with her friends. At this time, Mocha is working as a sex worker and she's living at a shelter. One of her clients messages her and asks her to come over. At first, she's kind of reluctant, you know, she's having a fun night out with friends and they're about to head to the club. And instead, she invites him out. So this is a client that she had had a pretty good relationship with, she had met with before. They were a bit more than just kind of on a transactional basis. They had shared things with each other, had had a good relationship. But this client is persistent and persuades her by telling her he has some weed for her. Now Mocha's thinking at this point, I need some weed. I need some for later tonight. And you know, he has back some. In 2015, it wasn't like the dispensaries today, you know? Like so every, true. Every two seconds you turn around, you'll get what you need. But you know what? I won't judge. But persistent over weed that should have been your first red flag exactly like it's not you know weed wasn't legal at the time so you couldn't just you know walk into a dispensary and pick it up so she's comfortable with this client he offers her weed she thinks great i need some for later tonight anyway i'll make a stop before i head out to the club so she heads over to his place and this man's name is jay foster why do i feel like i want to say never trusted jay i don't know know, something about just does not feel right so it's reported that jay lives as a heterosexual man male and had a girlfriend at the time so this is rude but anyway as i mentioned she felt comfortable with jay so mocha leaves her purse and pepper spray behind oh and she had pepper spray too so she was ready for all kinds of things but maybe she should have kept it with her yeah yeah and like you know she she is working as a sex worker and like Mm -hmm. we've mentioned in past episodes like we believe that sex work is work Mm -hmm. but there is a certain amount of risk that that comes with that and especially as a black trans woman they're just like added on risk because they're more at risk of violence it's true because when you look at all the intersectional pieces of it right calling the police already you're scared of not being believed because there's so many layers mm-hmm. to your identity that it, everybody just looks at you as like uh are you sure you didn't ask for it or are you sure like you're living a risky lifestyle so you're not gonna get support so yeah experience more violence because nobody's gonna care yeah exactly and for this reason i think a lot of people in this line of work are carrying certain things around with them Mm -hmm. like pepper spray and it is important for them to do that to protect themselves but we're saying here that she left it behind right Yeah, so she does usually bring it along, but in this scenario, she did leave it behind, right? Okay. Yeah. When Mocha arrives at his apartment, she can tell he's intoxicated. They start making out and they move towards the bedroom and they start what's described as foreplay. She then decides she's going to leave. She had plans that night. She she wants to head out to the club to meet her friends. So, you know, she tells him, okay, this is enough. She hadn't necessarily come there for sex. Like, this wasn't actually an appointment 
you know, that would have been described as her work. She was just going there as a social call. Jay gets angry at this point. Uh, he starts to get physical with Mocha. She's trying to leave and she pushes him off of her. I'm sure she's surprised at this point since they had had a pretty good relationship no. previously. Which she's yeah, probably caught off guard. Why is he doing the most? Exactly. She's like, we're like, not only are, do we have a professional client relationship, but I trusted you. We're friends. We shared intimate things about our lives. Yeah, I left homies. my pepper spray at home. Like, you know. this is not a homie like. Yeah, but I have no doubt this is something she's experienced in the past. So, you know, she knows what she's got to do. He starts yelling and she pushes him off her and she gets up and starts to leave. She's getting herself together and getting ready to leave and she hears him fiddling around in the kitchen. She says she doesn't even think twice about this. She's getting ready to go, and all of a sudden she sees in the corner of her eye, Jay walk up to her. He then tells her, I told you, you're not going anywhere. I don't like that. Just like the way your heart must like stop in a situation like that. Like all of a sudden you like, you can't catch your breath because you're Mm -hmm. like, "Mm, what? have i well like, that's not the right way to say it. not not what have i gotten myself into because that's really no, not the right way to say that but what it, what's going on right yeah. like percent but in that moment that's exactly how she's feeling like like what the fuck i'm actually i go i just went against all my instincts and you're you're putting us in this situation and I'm in fight or flight mode. What's going on? It's an unfortunate situation because she actually trusted him enough to leave her pepper spray behind and actually trust him on a, like a friendship basis. And it's it's scenarios like this that just gets everyone else to just be even more on guard and, and not, you know, let in people in their lives because of situations like this where you think you trust someone and then turns out it's probably not a good idea. As he's kind of standing over her in front of her, he is holding a knife and stabs her through her face. So like in a downwards motion, kind of like through her eye socket and cheek. Oh. Yeah. It's wow. it's like really hard to like hear oh, or picture. Big mad. No, you gotta be you gotta be. And like keep in mind he's mad because what she wants to go to the club to meet her friends and like this isn't right. your girlfriend, bro. To me it's like okay, stabbing is one thing, which like obviously that's awful. But choosing that place to stab is just another level like, of... There goes my chances of an open casket. You don't even <laughs> like me enough to like no, my but... mom. That's rude. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously. Like, yeah. And I've heard a different podcast kind of where there's a survivor in the story and they describe what they've been through. And it's almost... Like when someone has a hit to the head or a stab to the face or something where they can't necessarily visualize what has happened to them, it doesn't even process in their brain because all you feel like a sharp pain on your face. Yeah. So he stabs down. I don't know why I'm doing the motion because it makes it so much creepier. Okay, and then but he... thank you for the visuals. And then yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And then all of a sudden she feels him yank the knife back out of her head. Like... Oh the jolt <laughs> i'm sorry but that and like jolt. the pure shock too like you all you were just coming over and this is you know like i know we're saying this over and over again but they had a good relationship and all of a sudden she's found herself in this scenario happened so fast so then she feels him stab her in the stomach once he pulls the knife out of her face he stabs her in the stomach and she describes feeling like he's trying to gut her that's messed up when my brother sits on my stomach for a little too long, <laughs> I literally panic. I'm like, <laughs> like I feel this like is I'm how gonna, I die. I feel like I'm gonna pop. <laughs> if you stab me 
my stomach i'm taking it personal i'm taking it really really personal <laughs> the more we do like these what? survivor stories it feels like incredible that people yeah. go through these types of scenarios and make it out alive and mm-hmm. like almost come out like a stronger person and more resilient than they were we feel like under these scenarios we would just like crumble and like hide in a corner like mm-hmm. just take my life okay fine literally yeah just tell my mom it is what it is listen i tried it's fine <laughs> like wow at this point mocha is screaming for help and banging on the walls of the apartment she says that he keeps coming at her he then all of a sudden stops hitting her and walks away At this point, she can't see anything because her face and her eyes are covered in blood. She's been stabbed through the face. She's probably feeling around, screaming, just asking for help, probably asking him for help, trying to, Like, dude, what was that about? Yeah, (laughs) like, like, uh, help? Like, Like, can we just fix this? Like, yeah, yeah, the total shock and the not being able to see, not knowing exactly what has just happened to you, being in total fight or flight mode, um, like you guys said earlier. So she, she kind of walks into a room. So it's reported bedroom somewhere, but I also heard an interview with her that said bathroom. So it's not really... You know, she, she walks into one of the rooms in the apartment and she's calling his name. I work with survivors of violence. So like when we do safety plan with women, that is something we tell them. We say in the moment that you're being attacked, go to a room that's lockable. So a bathroom is a lockable room because it's not going to give you a million years or a million minutes, but it's going to give you potentially enough time to get your cell phone out, to yell, to grab soap and throw soap in their eyes. So totally makes sense. That's a really good point, actually, because I know some people have bedroom doors that lock, but I'm sure most don't. So just knowing that is actually really good information. Exactly. And a lot of people always think like, oh, like, why isn't the person running out of the door? Like, why aren't they? Why aren't they trying to like get out? But we always, always, always say make the safest decision. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the safest decision isn't the decision that most people would make. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. Sometimes the safest decision is saying I could only stay in my basement, but that's long enough for me to do whatever I got to do to alert whoever I need to alert. And if I turn around, that's enough time for someone to choke me, to shoot me, to harm me. Like my back is against them. So it's not the safest decision. So that's always something to let people know. Yes, that's really good to know for background. I'm sure that's something, like we said, considering her background that she must have been aware of or had worked with social workers or caseworkers in the past or had just heard from, you know, fellow sex workers that were in her similar situation. So I, I missed a detail, so I'm going to go back quickly. So actually, before she heads into the bathroom, she is, I guess, and a lot of this is blurry for her, which totally fair. Yeah. She... At some point, I don't know if it's a new knife that she's grabbed or the same knife that she had been stabbed with, Mm -hmm. but she has a knife in her hand and remembers stabbing Jay. So in defense, she's probably fiddling around, blood in her face, in her eyes, and all of a sudden in defense, she stabs Jay and then escapes to the bathroom. Mm. Okay. So I think it's pretty fair to say that it was the bathroom, especially considering all the background information that we have. Yeah, I agree. So then she asks him why. Like, why would you have done this? Like, she, she, I'm sure she's totally confused. She has no idea, you know, what his motives would have been. And then he apologizes to her. I, know. I assume they're speaking, like, through the bathroom door. That's what I assume okay. as well. Or maybe when she stabbed him, she goes to the bathroom and then realizes she's like incapacitated him enough that she feels safe to come out. Right. No, like, hey, sorry um, for stabbing you in the face and in the stomach. LOL. Just kidding. Like, what? 
Yeah. yeah and so it is reported that he was intoxicated, like I said at the beginning. So I don't know if this is drugs or alcohol, if it's a mix of both. I really don't like to blame like violent behavior on any of those but this like inconsistency in his behavior it's strange right how do you go from like ragefully stabbing him through the face and in the stomach to being like oh i'm so sorry i did that this next part might explain that a little bit he then says mocha please i'm dying so maybe he was just apologizing hoping that she would i don't know call call the police ask for help it sucks when the shoe's on the other foot right because you attacked her and she was able to defend herself Mm -hmm. exactly yeah now he's the one asking for help when really it's all his fault like you started this Mm -hmm. yeah like for no reason too yeah so she phones 911 and she asks for the police and an ambulance jay hears this and runs out the door He had just gotten out of jail for unprovokingly stabbing someone, but Mocha was unaware of this. Jay runs from the police and tries to put himself through a garbage chute. So there's a lot, there's chaos at this point, right? That is chaotic energy for real. Like the garbage chute, damn. After you've been stabbed too, you think you're fine to go through the garbage chute? Exactly. So he's been stabbed. He's bleeding out. He hears the word police or he is aware that police is coming, even though he basically asked her to call for help. I have a question. If any of you guys know the answer to this, I think when you call 911, they send police first regardless right yeah in the past that's typically what they do but if they ask you like because one of their intake question is going to be do you Mm. need paramedics and so if you say yes immediately they'll send it out but in Ottawa I don't know where else in Ontario but in Ottawa the average time for a paramedic to get to you is eight minutes yeah and if you're deeply injured I mean eight minutes is a long time yeah exactly yeah Yeah. so at this point mocha runs out of the building and she can see you know across the blood in her eyes she can see two figures coming towards her Mm -hmm. one of them yells drop your weapon she drops what she's holding which i'm assuming is the knife that she was probably clutching onto in fear and tries to explain to them that she's the one that called 911 and then she says in an interview that she's maced in the face i don't know if this means pepper spray because i know that that's kind of more common I don't know. Mace is mace for wild animals and pepper spray with police carry on them. That's what my impression was. I always thought they were just interchangeable. I just thought it was the same thing. I I don't even think you're actually supposed to carry pepper spray. I don't think you're allowed to. Yeah. Damn. I mean, I don't know, man. The streets are scary. Anyone who thinks they should carry pepper spray should have the right to. Mm -hmm. But that's just that people are not smart enough to use it properly. And that's the problem. Yeah. But this Pamela kind of just highlights what you said earlier. People are afraid to call the police. Mm -hmm. She's the victim here. And I know for police, it's kind of hard to tell. She's walking out of this apartment building full of blood, probably holding a knife. But Mm -hmm. she's saying, I'm the one who called 911. And she ends up being pepper sprayed. So she's been stabbed across the face, stabbed in the gut, and then pepper sprayed, which oh, I'm assuming is on in top the of face. that. Yeah, on top of that wound. Talk about a shitty day. Talk. No, seriously. She's like, I was trying to live the end of my caravan a weekend and go out to the club. Imagine trying to get to the club and instead of getting to the club where you're having your tequila shots, you're just, you're getting stabbed, you're getting pepper sprayed. I would be livid. I am not the strongest soldier. 
that's it for me that's my 13th reason i don't understand how people have like the will to keep going like it's oh it's so frustrating and just to hear her kind of talk about the story like she just seems so resilient like she just says it's so matter of fact and it's like yep and then this happened and then this happened and here i am today and it's like um wow how are you here today like it's right? yeah and so during this time she's pepper sprayed she's put in an ambulance and they tell her she's being charged with murder because <laughs> while jay was running away from the police and tried to put himself through the garbage chute he ends up bleeding out well that's a him problem you know what i mean ah. so uh, we're choosing to focus this week on the so-called perpetrator of the crime uh, for reasons that I hope are really obvious because this was, to me, it seems like a very obvious self-defense act yeah. and it, it doesn't necessarily end up looking that way to everyone. So we're gonna, we're gonna keep going into it. But first I wanna tell you a bit about Mocha herself. In the interview of uh, the podcast I mentioned earlier, Mocha tells Hollywood Jade, she knew she was different and explained she grew up in the hood. In 2008, she turned 18 and was living in Montreal with her father, who she describes as an old-school Jamaican man. It's really important, like, when you grow up in an environment where you have, like, old tradition, like, old mindsets, it's really hard because I think everybody has wants to learn, but ultimately the roots of the traditions are so hard to break. That's how they call it a transgenerational freaking trauma. Like it's so hard because no matter how progressive you get, there's always a limit because there's a loyalty to the tradition. Right. And that's super mm. important for you to mention. And she kind of, she kind of says this and describes it a bit like as first when she was younger, I think she comes out as gay mm -hmm. and then eventually comes out as trans and she kind of, and I think this is the case for a lot of trans people, right? It's difficult to come, not to come to terms, but to just like kind of like settle into who you really are because of all these things whether it's it's about culture or it's just about people around you and the fear of not being accepted so she kind of has to come out twice right and you know having to do that to an old school jamaican father is most likely even harder she decides to pack up and move to toronto with a friend and she says this is a period of time in her life where she's really able to find herself she soon after the next year moves back to montreal she describes that the relationship that she has with her family was an is challenging. Eventually, Mocha moves back to Toronto. She worked as a sex worker there and lived in a shelter at this time, like I mentioned earlier. She had a strong connection to Toronto's 2SLGBTQ plus community. At the time of the attack, she had been back in Toronto for about nine months. Now we're going to talk a bit about the trial. So Mocha's trial would start in 2018. She had been in custody since the day of her arrest, which I feel like is so hard to like wrap your head around. Like you you do something one day, especially in this scenario, in an act of self-defense, and all of a sudden your life just changes in an instant. Yeah, Honestly, I can't even believe she's going to court. And honestly, yeah. jail is the worst. I took a tour. It's cold. They give you like a three-inch foam. Like, it's not even a mattress. It's like a foam piece. You're not cozy. It's not there to make you feel like things are going to go good for you. It's no. not good vibes. I had no idea you took a tour of jail. I guess prison, yeah. not jail, right? Jail is where they hold you like for a second. And then prison is where you go to serve out yeah. your sentence. So I've done a tour at the Elgin Courthouse Jail, like downstairs. Mm -hmm. And I've also done a, a, done a tour at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. Cool. In, or in, in Orleans. And let me tell you something 
something. It's cold in there. I know my anemic self would never be able to survive. I would literally be like, I need three blankets. Yeah. And she's going to describe a bit of what her experience was like when she was at the detention center. And okay, not like Maggie who watches prison documentaries for fun. <laughs> I haven't put a lot of thought to kind of what that does look like. And um, especially in Canada, because I think a lot of true crime that we listen to or watch is American. So I think this is really important to talk about. So she had been housed in an all-male Toronto South Detention Center. Mocha was a trans woman. She identified as a woman and she was a woman. So why? Why was she being housed in an all-male Toronto South Detention Center when she should have been housed in a women's detention center? It said in this particular article that this was a choice, a choice she had made rather than staying in a segregated uh, section of a women's facility. Because I, I guess what they're saying at this point is that there's really not a space for her. So she can either choose to stay in a segregated section of a women's facility or go to an all-male facility. That really makes me so mad. Oh, 1,000%. It makes me really upset that even nowadays this is still. Yeah, there. I'm sure this is happening like today. Yeah, I don't exactly. think that this is much different. Really, it is in the policy. It is, it is in the way that things are written. It's the fact that like if it's not on your birth certificate, you don't get it, or you either choose your mental health or the ability to get fresh air. Hmm. Yeah. So, like it's not. These are not easy decisions to make, and I'm glad I don't have to make them. But it's unfortunate that people do. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like I just mentioned in this article, it's kind of worded as a choice that she had, which I say that that's BS because she had to choose between being completely isolated or in a men's prison. It's two inappropriate choices in terms of the scenario that she should have been given. Yeah, yeah. it's like pick your struggle, but it can't be both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So her knowing herself chose her mental health and chose to be not segregated and not isolated and she wanted to be in a men's prison so that she could at least have some of the freedoms that she thought she wouldn't get in the other scenario mm-hmm. at the outset of the trial the judge turned down a defense request to allow a jury to hear the leading scholar in gender and transgender studies so this would have been a court expert so they often have uh, experts come in to kind of testify to maybe what mocha's life would have looked like then what struggles she would have been going through and what could have potentially led to a scenario like this so right off the bat she said at a disadvantage the jurors are not allowed to hear what her reality is like and what the intersectionality of living like a black trans woman who is working as a sex worker and all the complications that would come from that during her trial the judge said that it was clear dawkins so we're talking about mocha was provoked but ruled that her actions went beyond legitimate self-defense he also said that she took too long to call 911 okay but like who <laughs> sorry where's the rule book where you have a certain amount of time to process what's happening to you when you just got stabbed in the eye in the face and in the stomach like and i'm just trying to get out of my bathroom and or bedroom like what do you mean it took too long for me to call 911 and she I'm- obviously wants to call 911. She's also currently bleeding out. Exactly. Like, we are in the same boat here. Ugh. Once the trial is over, the jury deliberates for two days. Their verdict rejects Mocha's claim that she was acting in self-defense when she repeatedly stabbed Jay Foster, who was 27 at the time, to his death in his downtown apartment on August 3rd, 2015. To which we heard Mocha, or I heard, and then told you guys, Mocha say herself, that yes, she had stabbed him, but if he hadn't ran from the police and tried to shove his body through a garbage chute, he probably wouldn't have bled out because the ambulance was coming. She had called for help. 
he really did this to all of us. Yes, and the, the victim here in this scenario, I think we can all agree, is Mocha. And Absolutely. it's so frustrating. And I think as Canadians, we often put ourselves on a different like pedestal than Americans or other justice systems in the world. And this just proves that we're not that we're far not off. We're not the nice ones. No. <laughs> no. It's no nice ones. We're not the nicest of. It's like we're yeah. all messing up incredibly. So Mocha, who was 28 at the time, had been sworn into court with her dead name, which again is so rude. She's been going by Mocha Dawkins for years now. You don't put yourself in a scenario to live certain oppressions just for fun. She's not doing this for fun. You know, she's not identifying as another gender because she just feels like it. It's because that is who she is and they're not respecting that. So she hears the jury convict her of manslaughter but acquit her of the more serious charge of second degree murder. Uh, at least that, like, it's not perfect, but second degree murder is real serious. Like, that's like 25 years. Really sucks that manslaughter is her way of settling. Exactly. Like, you won't get this, but you won't get freedom either, even though you technically really deserve freedom. No, like you still get a record. Yeah. You still can't leave the country without at least five people signing off on it. You're not as free as you think, but maybe, just maybe, you'll get to like go to Carabana again. <laughs> but you're also seen as a murderer in the eyes of like the law or the government or the community. Like you like, can't apply for jobs. But good yeah, luck. good luck. It's hard to get housing because people do criminal record checks mm-hmm. for housing. You end up in the same position you left and you're like, oh, all right, but at least I'm alive. Thanks. And all this for trying to defend herself like if she hadn't done this the tables would be turned and she'd be the dead one so what was she supposed to do so she was sentenced to eight years in prison but only had 18 months left to serve because she had been in prison the entire time since her arrest she after her sentence carried out the last months the fact that we had a case a couple weeks ago where the murderers got two years for manslaughter or something like that one let's preface this by pamela if you haven't listened to the episode it's the aaron webster case and it's a gay man living in vancouver who was attacked by you know three to five it's not really clear white male teenagers so that is the freaking problem Mm -hmm. i think that's a good comparison to show yeah the differences between white male getting sentenced yeah. one year in, in prison one year at home under yeah, strict conditions like eight years for defending their lives so the way that it works in the judicial system is if you're incarcerated when you don't technically have a guilty verdict so technically you're innocent when you are sentenced the judge will do time and a half so what they did for her in 2015 it was still the two year for every year served so it was like time and a half kind of like at work when you work right. on a holiday mm-hmm. time and a half is the right. same concept so even though she was only there three four years if you do times two because she was innocent in 2015 16 17 18 until she was sentenced then it equals that 6.5 years that the judge was saying okay well mm. you've technically already done 6.5 now you only have to do that 18 months left so it's just a way to compensate for the fact that you spend time in jail when technically you had no reason to be in jail okay that makes a lot of sense and but this probably goes back to what we were talking about a couple weeks ago like bail so i'm sure bail was set for her but she couldn't afford it so she could have potentially because it's not necessarily like she's a danger to society like it's totally self-defense so yeah I'm sure if bail had been set appropriately that maybe money could have been raised or maybe not, but that's probably part of the reason, which is as another layer of poverty on top of it, like that 
keeps you where you are and getting out of that cycle is so hard. And that's the tough part because to get out, you need proof of an address. So if you were homeless or you had unsafe like housing, you don't have a place, you need the surety. So you need somebody who will attest, especially for a charge like murder. Like you need someone who will say that you're a good person and that they they will be financially and personally responsible for you while you're out in bail, which is hard to get. And it makes it harder the longer you are in jail. If it's a couple months it's easier to keep those around you that that you had prior to going into prison but if you're there for a couple years the harder it is to to keep your your circle outside of prison so it just makes it way more difficult for the the afterlife I guess yeah definitely so she also says in in an interview that working in the industry you have your brawls which we we talked about a bit but she never expected this to happen okay now we'll talk a bit about her time in the detention center so despite her best efforts not to be isolated she says that she was still segregated. She says she experienced violence from the guards and she wasn't allowed to wear her wig in prison. So she kind of, she says she petitioned hard and hard and eventually got the right to do so, but she actually wrapped a t-shirt around her head to kind of, you know, make it look like she was wearing a wig to still have part of her identity with her. 1,000%. Because they see it as weapons. Yeah, and I actually learned that the other day while watching one of my documentaries. They were doing each other's hair and I just thought, oh, that's neat. They're able to do their hair at least and, and they had to hide from the guards every time they had to do their hair because they weren't allowed to have it and I was just like why not exactly like no hair no makeup no nothing everything is seen as a weapon especially as a trans woman who's also part of like your identity and like becoming that person yeah putting on those things and adding those things and and doing the things that you probably didn't do when you were younger because it wasn't seen as appropriate right so Mm -hmm. it's like totally not only as a part of just being a woman and most women's identity but for trans women even more I would assume also tough because when you look at the women who are incarcerated we know statistically speaking I, I don't know which statistics but I know I've read it <laughs> but statistically speaking women who are incarcerated or find themselves incarcerated have also been victim of assault uh, or violence within their lifetime so if you present as male you also may be triggering them in ways that they weren't anticipating even when incarcerated right so it's even harder to build connections and relationships that are important in survival in uh, the prison system yeah especially she just was just attacked by a man right she yeah. was just so forget past stuff which i'm sure she had been through but she had just gone through it and then had to experience violence from the guards she describes as herself as taking no shit while she was there mm-hmm. she was herself till the end and she had very horrible experience with inmates. Uh, she was attacked several times and she got through a lot of it with her faith and support from her community. I'm glad she still had her community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mocha says her activism started within the walls of the prison. She has worked with many community organizations from within the prison all the way to now. One of them we're donating to this week, so we'll talk a bit about it when we get to the end. She talks publicly about the dangers of sex work. In 2020, Mocha was charged with assault, uttering threats of bodily harm and failure to comply with probation after a dispute occurred between two individuals inside a residence. News of her arrest began to spread on social media and calls for support were quickly sent out amongst activist groups. Demonstrations soon gathered outside Toronto's Police Services 14th Division where they chanted and marked up posters 
sisters. Following the public outcry from community members and anti-racism groups, she is released from police custody. She continues with her activism and speaks publicly about her experience as a black trans woman in the justice system. This is just a bit of an update. I mean, she does talk. She actually has her own podcast. I haven't listened to it, but I did listen to her interview, like I mentioned. She continues to talk about her experience. She makes sure it's not forgotten. I she love conti- that. I know. She works really with these community do. groups and she is trying to make sure things are different. And yeah. it's unfortunate that this incident happened in 2020. There's not much information about the actual incident, but it's so nice to see that the community realizes how important she is to their experience and to the change that needs to happen. And they rallied behind her and they said, not this time. And they released her because, I, again, we don't know exactly what happened, but she was so done dirty, the, for lack of a better term, the first <laughs> yeah. time that they're like, hell no, this is not happening it to her the, again. It was the bare minimum. But I really do like that because it's true that it's not easy to share your experience, especially when it's traumatic, but she still did it and she's real about it. <laughs> she's real about it. She so. is so real about it. She's so unapologetically herself. I definitely plan on listening to some episodes of her podcast. And I also recommend that everybody watch the documentary Surviving the Block that I mentioned is available on Out TV. It's not often that Canadian documentaries are made about our justice system and, and scenarios like this. And she talks in it. She tells the whole story from beginning to end. And I just think it's so interesting. And I don't know how popular or how much attention it got, but it deserves it. You know what? I'm going to watch that right after this, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I was looking for a good Sunday night vibe thing to watch. And I think it's going to get me energy for the week. So I did want to talk a little bit about how difficult it was to find a case for this week and I I kind of ranted to both uh, my co-hosts this week about that but you know we did want to do a special episode to celebrate Black History Month and I really tried to find several different cases. It took me hours to research and I couldn't find anything. The underrepresentation of Black women in the media has never been so obvious to me. I know that there's probably nothing this little podcast can do about it but we hope that we can, as much research as we have to do, we can find these cases and we can continue to talk about them because we know how important it is. And even the fact that Indigenous women and girls would pop up above any Black woman, and I know that, again, is a serious problem in Canada, but we're talking about that and we're not talking about Black women. And I, I kind of feel at a loss because I don't really know what I'm getting to, but it, it's just, it was hard. It was hard to see. And the fact that we're covering a case that the Black woman is, quote unquote, the perpetrator, because that's what was coming up. Yeah. for me is pretty is much tough. I mean it's the reality of it right like I think trying to talk about issues that affect black women when it's necessary but it's really the struggle olympics <laughs> like 90% of the times that's the reality as a black woman you have to pick which struggle best represents your position in that moment do you want to identify as a a black person, a person of color, and just you get regrouped with issues that don't necessarily represent your full struggles, but maybe bring the the issues most at bay, or do you want to identify as a woman? That's why the whole intersectionality and and the intersectional theory was so important, but it's almost impossible. But if you look at the Canadian stat, there's so many black women and women of color that are interacting with this system, but it's just not in the news. So uh, this comes to the end of our episode, and we'd like to thank Pamela for 
for joining us. I'm sure she'll join us for future episodes again, but we really appreciate just you giving your opinion and your lived experience and sharing that all with us. And, you know, we can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. I love having a moment with you both and I love you both. And I'm thankful that you want to speak up on issues that impact me and my community. So thank you, my loves. This week, we will be donating to Maggie's Toronto. This is from their website. Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project is one of Canada's oldest by and for sex worker support organizations and one of the first sex worker organizations globally to receive government funding. Founded in 1986, Maggie's was established on the belief that sex work is real, legitimate, and valuable work. We are not an exit organization, and we believe that whether sex workers choose to stay or leave their industries, we all deserve to live with safety, dignity, and respect. To improve our lives, sex workers must take the power to control our own destinies. This is why Maggie's exists, first and foremost, as an organization run by and for sex workers that is controlled by sex workers. If you would like to contribute to Maggie's Toronto, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram slash TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Thank you.